midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty have welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they have gave much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, as they urgently pleaded us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to the completion of this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in love, we have kindled in you. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, through, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this manner. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work that your, eager, that your eager willingness to do, it may be matched by completion of it, according to your means, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one, has, what one does not have. Our desire is not what others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much. The one who gathered little did not have too little. Thank you, Cameron. So obviously this is not a Mother's Day sermon, so uh, I better just say Happy Mother's Day right now and get it over with, and uh, glad for moms. When I was a uh, younger, I, I can't say, I never was a young pastor, you know that, because I became a pastor when I was about 40, and at least with that title where people start calling you Pastor Mark, it takes a while to get used to. But uh, when I was a younger pastor in those earlier uh, years, I had a mentor who gave me some good advice, another pastor, and he said, first of all, Mark, never apologize for asking people to give generously to the Lord's work. Never, never apologize for that. You're doing them a favor. I believe that. I have to believe that. I thoroughly believe that. Even when people don't respond that way, I still believe it. Uh, And secondly, he said that you're better off teaching on stewardship and generosity when you're not asking for money. And because people have this cynical attitude that you want, you don't want something for them, you want something from them, right? And some of you, I think all of us at least know that feeling. But he said, if you do have to, and there are times when a pastor needs to teach on money while you're in a campaign or a season where you need to raise money for something, or or, uh, stewardship something. 
There is a place in the Bible you want to go, and it's 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, because that's exactly what Paul is doing there. He is teaching on stewardship, while at the same time he is asking for money. And you'll notice, and you've maybe heard it in the passage, that Paul's main concern, he's got a passion for a huge gift that he wants to bring. And I'll tell you about the project here in just a minute. But he has an even huger concern for the heart of those who are being asked to give. This is, Paul's emphasis is on the heart. And um, so he wants something for them more than he wants something from them. And it, it just comes through in this passage. So if I don't do a good job today explaining this passage, just read the passage and you'll see what Paul is doing there. Our, we're going to get right into this. And um, this is going to be our outline, how we're going to approach it. The situation in Corinth in 15. Uh, 55 AD-ish, we don't know exactly, but it's right around there. And then we're going to look at the problem that Paul was dealing with in the church there, and then look at the way forward where we will spend a little bit more time. Okay, so the situation, the project that Paul is raising, uh, trying to raise funds for. He's trying to raise funds for the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was the original church. That's where it all started, folks. And, you know, Jesus died there. And then the original disciples, followers of Jesus, were mostly Jewish. And then it went out into the world uh, from there. So here's the map. And Paul, as he writes this letter, is in Macedonia, which you see referenced in the text. And here's Corinth here, and here's Jerusalem down here. And there had been a, let's see, where is it? Right there. There had been a long-standing famine in Jerusalem. And we know that from history. We know it from the book of Acts. But it had probably gone on for at least 10 years. And so the, the Christians, who were Jewish Christians, who lived in Jerusalem, were under a lot of pressure. They, had, they didn't have enough food to eat. And so this is the offering that Paul is taking up for them. He's taking it up. We, we, it's a big offering. It's probably a very large offering. We don't know exactly, but he mentions it when he writes the letter to the Romans. He mentions it in the letter, the first letter he wrote to the Corinthians. It's mentioned, it's referenced at least in Galatians, and we find it in the book of Acts. And so it's a big deal. Paul is going to collect from all these churches. He's, a, he's the messenger of the gospel to basically this world here, the Gentile world, non-Jewish world, and the but this is the Jewish world still that, that from whence the gospel comes. And Paul, has a, he's, he's compassionate. He, he would, I'm sure, want to help anybody who is suffering. But he has a special concern for the relationship between the Jewish and the non-Jewish parts of the church. He doesn't want there to be a Jewish church and a non-Jewish church or Gentile church. That's the other way to say it. He wants the church to be one. Paul has a huge concern for theological, for unity amongst the church. That there wouldn't be, if he were to look at America, why do you have black churches and white churches? Why can't you have one church? And it's not for the white people to tell the others to be like us. We mean one church where everyone has value. You see? This is Paul's concern in the New Testament. And he rues the day when the church becomes divided. And it's a beautiful thing. These people, the, the Jewish people who have given us Messiah, Paul says, let's reciprocate in mutuality and we're going to give them things that they need. And when that happens, it's just an emblem of what the gospel is all about. It's so powerful it breaks down walls that have been there for thousands of years. Now that ought to get your soul excited. That's Paul. Paul. 
So that's the situation, and there's a problem. Now the problem is that the Corinthians were in on the gift originally, and you heard it referenced here, but now they have kind of gotten cold towards it. They've, they've gotten stuck. They've gotten, uh, they're dragging their feet. They're, they're no long, they don't seem to be all in as they once were. And that's the concern that Paul is addressing. We don't exactly know why. This, the text doesn't tell us. We can, I'll, try to, I'll give you a few ideas of what might have happened. I mean, time has passed. It's been over a year, it looks like, now from once they started this. Uh, they started well, but now they're, they're just stuck in their giving. And Paul is going to be coming. He's appointed Titus to, uh, I should probably get that map back up there if I can do that. So Paul is up here writing the letter and he sends Titus down to Corinth to prepare the gift to be received. And then Paul is going to come down here with an entourage, which includes the Macedonians, and then they're going to cross over and eventually make it down to Jerusalem. So, uh, the, the, but Titus is sent ahead to kind of get things going, and uh, they appear to be stuck. Now, why are they stuck? Well, it uh, could be that, you know, just the time people get busy and you lose focus and, you know, look at your calendars and you'll see how it works. I mean, it's just, it happens. But there's also a possibility, they, they've gotten sideways with the Apostle Paul, and we know that from these letters. We have two letters. There were actually, he wrote at least three letters to them. We, we have a lost, the famous lost letter to the Corinthians where he scolds them heavily and then they, the relationship gets repaired. But this is, and this is a, the repair letter. This is where things are better again, but they had this long time of, of discord between uh, Paul and the church in Corinth. And it's, it's quite a relationship, and we'll be in the letter to the first Corinthians our whole summer, so we can, you can look forward to getting into some of that weird stuff that's going on in Corinth. But they had gotten sideways. And then there may have been some, and I, I just speculate on this because uh, robberies were common in that, uh, along the, the roads of the Roman Empire. Um, there may have been, you know, as they travel, and this is, a, this is a large gift from many churches as they travel, there may be some on the stewardship committee in Corinth who say, I'm not sure we should, it's a good stewardship. You, know, you see where the logic goes here? I'm not sure it's a good stewardship that we really give this money because it, it might get robbed. There's a good chance it'll get robbed, and there was. But you see how that can slow down, that, that way of thinking can slow down the generosity that might be there in their hearts. I mean, we don't know. Honestly, we don't know, but we do know this because we have our own hearts, and that is that we can, if you want to think of a reason to not be generous, how hard is it? <laughs> do an inventory. I mean, there's always, there's always a reason, right? We know that. And we get stuck. So here's my uh, confession, and you have to promise you won't tell anybody kind of a deal, right? That's, if I'm going to be bold and vulnerable here before you, then um, I, I need you to help me out. And you'll see at the end that it's not that big a deal, but it is, right? So, my whole adult life, I, let's see, and I'm including Patty in this confession, even though I didn't get permission, so we'll see how Mother's Day goes. Um, <laughs> but we, we didn't have a TV the first 10 years of our, uh, of our married life. And uh, that's, that's just to let, so it's not my whole adult life, but since we've had a TV, the, the number one 
network that we have watched is PBS KCTS 9. And uh, I don't say that to try to impress you in any way, because what I'm going to say next will uh, not impress you. But uh, I just want to give you the reason why we love uh, KCTS 9 is that, well, there's things like, you know, Downton Abbey, we we got into that. But more than that, I tell you what, I am a sucker for British murder mysteries. And I just, I love, Martina, I love the accent. And and David out there somewhere, I saw you, I love, I can listen to that British accent all day long. Now, you don't get the accent so much from the dead bodies. (laughs) But, and there's a lot of dead bodies in these mysteries. But at any rate, we... Patty and I together love watching those kind of shows. But the, the, the confession is, and maybe you've already guessed it, is that we have never given anything. When you know, they have those fundraisers every, however they often, and we just flip channels at that point and uh, <laughs> find another favorite network, you know. But the reason I bring it up is it's just it's an example of how you can get stuck. Because I tell you what, I would want to give. Uh, it's a good cause. Uh, I have good intentions, but I haven't given and that happens in life, and it happened, something like that happened here in, uh, in Corinth. So there's the situation, and there's the problem, and now Paul is going to give three ways to get uh, unhinged from the problem or, or break, break through and into the, the place where he wants to see the Corinthians go. And he want, again, he wants... I want you to listen. He wants something for them more than he wants from them. But the first thing he does... Uh, and you can, if you read Paul, you can say, well, he's, he's been a little bit manipulative. Uh, yeah, probably. But he uses the Macedonians as an example. He holds them up as a good example of people who are generous. And he says, this is what he says in verse 2, that he points out that they have great joy and combined with great poverty equals a generous heart. I mean, how would you, joy and poverty, generosity, that's not the normal formula for whatever, but that's what Paul loves about them, or he sees in them that is worth mentioning. And then he says in verse 5 that they have given themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and second of all, to us. So there's the vertical giving of themselves away and the horizontal. And that's just who they are. And the point is that they have risked something for the sake of the gospel. And how many of us love the word risk? Isn't it? I mean, you know, there's a. I don't know if you, you know, different audiences. If you were, if we were at a uh, some other, you know, place, maybe some of you would raise your hand. But we're. Are we more control oriented or more risk oriented here in this part of the world? I mean, let's be honest. Let's confess together here. I did some confession. You can come on on board here. We'd like to control things. How do control and risk relate to each other? It's like oil and water. They don't. So uh, the Macedonians, though, had risk. Now, here's the, here's the, out of the brochure that you might get from somebody on the financial, in the financial world, that if you're going to get reward, you have to take more risk. Basically, it's a, it's a high risk, high reward, low risk, low reward kind of a deal. And the Macedonians were apparently taking lots of risk. They were giving beyond their ability, it says, whatever that means. 
And they, so they, maybe, maybe some people would say, you guys aren't even, you aren't wise doing it that way, you know. But they were taking risks without really any assurance of a reward. I mean, at least they didn't see the timeline, they didn't see the outline, they weren't sure how it was all going to work out. Just like Curtis was talking about planting seeds, five generations later, you see the fruit, whatever. So um, they're, they're risk takers. At least for the right reasons, they're risk takers. Now, um, this church, Dave Anderson, who was up here a while ago, uh, was part of, there was a small group that started meeting in the 1980s. And I know how it works with church plants. I've, I've been part of many. And I coach church planters now. You have to be a risk taker to plant a church. Or you have to not be maybe labeled a risk taker, but you have to have a part of you that's willing to take a risk. And what is faith? Faith are the, is, is the people who go forward when they fear. That's what faith is. It's not people who just feel full of faith. It's people who can get through those fears. And so church plants are, are that way. And you had a group of people, a small group that uh, had, had hopes and dreams. They put it before the Lord. The, the resources were really more internal than external. And look what happened. You are here because somebody risked. I want you to hear that. If no one had risked, you wouldn't be here. And, we'll get, and fundamentally that's true because Jesus Christ risked for you. There's no, there's no gospel without risk. You see control-laden people. We have a problem with our control stuff. Now, we don't want to be stupid about it, but there is something there we need to consider. I do know, because I was part of it, that in 1995, when I, be, when I took that name pastor on and became a church planter, that I was taking a risk, and that the group that was 30 people in the Anchorage area that were calling me to be their pastor were taking a risk, let me tell you. And I was saying inside myself, as we were driving up the Alcan, you know, three teen, preteen boys and a cat in an Aerostar. And the cat got out in British Columbia somewhere and unfortunately found her way back. (laughs) The incredible journey. She became a longtime Alaskan, and I have the scars to show it. But as, I, as we were driving up there, I, the, the thing that was going through my head more often than not, or just as often as I prayed the prayer of, oh Lord, I'm so sure glad that you've got things in control because I don't, I said, what the heck am I doing? What the heck am I doing? I've sold the business. I'm in, a, I'm in a road I've never been on before. There were forest fires alongside the road. It's crazy stuff, you know. We've never seen that before. And the people in the, the group there, they were saying, what the heck are we doing? This is what it means, though, to walk in faith. You just keep going because you know that you're heading in the right direction and you're not sure exactly what the outcome's going to look like. For Paul, you know what? Eventually, he got to Jerusalem with the, the big gift and he gave it to the church. And you know what happened next? He was arrested and he spent most of the rest of his life in jail. And it's not exactly what he had planned. But we don't get to, I mean, the, the proverb is that we make plans and the Lord directs our path. And there's always going to be some sense of open-ended things that aren't clear about it. That some people are going to want full certainty and clarity before we take a step, and it just doesn't work that way, never has. A year ago, as we were uh, wrestling, the leadership team was wrestling with this campaign idea, uh, we did, I, mean, I just want you to know, we wrestled back and forth. 
And there was a, a meeting, and I think it was about in April of last year, where uh, Mark Boffman, who's on our leadership team, said something like this. You know, we're all, we're all looking at the cost of this thing and what it's going to cost us if we do it. But what if we don't do it? What's the cost? What's the cost? And you don't know. I mean, we, but it, it sensed in, the, in that question there, the Holy Spirit was speaking to us. That's, that's the sense we had. We didn't want to know the answer, quite frankly. And that became a, a turning point in our deliberations and prayers. So I just want you to hear that. So uh, risk is part of the deal. And the Macedonians, they, they faithed their way. Faith their way, not fake their way. Faith their way through it. Secondly, it's not a command. The way forward is not a command. Paul doesn't say to them, I'm commanding you to be generous. Do you see how that doesn't work? You can't command somebody to be generous because to be generous is a work of the heart. It's a work of the Spirit. Paul has plenty of places in the Scriptures where he does command people to do things and change their behavior, sexual purity, and so forth. But not when it comes to giving. You can't. If, if, you, if you command somebody to give more and they give more, that is not generosity. That's manipulation and coercion. You invite people in and you let the Holy Spirit do the work in the heart. And that in the, hopefully in this campaign, that you, we, we want to invite, invite, invite. And you may get tired of being invited, but that's the plan. But we don't want to coerce. It's not, that's not the plan. So uh, the, the way that goes forward here, Paul doesn't give a commandment, but he gives advice. In verse 10, he says, uh, two points of advice, I think. And here is my advice, Paul says, about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to give. Now finish that work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. And so the first thing Paul is saying is just, just finish what you started with the same heart that you started with. Now, now finish. I'm not commanding you. I'm giving you this advice. And don't overthink it. It seems what, to be what Paul is saying. Just give, you know, just, just do it. Um, there's one commentator here has said that one of the problems with the Corinthians, one of the reasons they may be stuck is because they, they tend to have a pride issue. We know that from elsewhere, especially in 1 Corinthians, that they take great spiritual pride. And what Paul is saying to them is just put your pride aside. You may want to give the biggest gift of all the churches. You see how this goes? You may be wanting to be recognized as having made a large contribution. You may want to make heroic efforts to give. You may want to do way, way more than the Macedonians, but you're not doing anything. And maybe it's your perfectionism. And you're, you're just, just give. Just take that step from where you started. And give, here's the second point, give what you can, not what you can't. You don't have to be super heroic and impress anybody. Just take what God has given to you, measure it out before him, and allow his spirit to. Now, this is what we would want, and I've heard this from many times over the years, but what we would want is somebody to send us a bill, and we just, then we know what to do, and we feel like we can either be you know, in the right or in the wrong. It's clear, but that's not the way generosity works. That would be a religious obligation and a duty. And the way the New Testament works, even with the word tithing, which is not emphasized in the New Testament, what is emphasized is the attitude from which 
the giving comes. And how do you discern the right amount? Folks, deepen your spirituality. That's what the New Testament is saying. You're not going to have any human being tell you how much to give. It's about considering what God has given to you and allowing the Holy Spirit to do And you don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to feel proud. It's none of that. All that stuff gets wiped away. Well, that's the third place that Paul goes here, and that is to the, that God gives first. And the way that, that there's just one supercharged verse, verse 9, that um, makes that clear. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, here's the grace, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, if you can absorb that verse through uh, whatever, just into your heart, you'll get the generosity thing. You'll understand why the Macedonians did what they were doing and why the Corinthians were not quite there yet. So how was Jesus Christ rich? The truth is that what Paul is referring to here is not Jesus the man of Nazareth, because he was not rich. He's referring to the pre-incarnate, or how, what we would call the eternal Son of God who existed from before time, who was with the Father, with the Spirit, and what theologians would call a, a spiritual, unending spiritual dance of love. Father giving to Son, Son giving to Spirit, Spirit giving to Father. It, there's, no, there's, there's just harmony in the Trinity. You talk about rich. This world knows little of this. The, the one example in this world that we have that Paul mentions in, in uh, Ephesians is the relationship between a husband and wife. That's, that, that comes close. This mutual giving, receiving, giving more, receiving more that goes on within the marriage relationship at, at its best, on our best days, folks, when we're right. But, but just the eternal nature of that within the Trinity is what Paul is saying. That's the richness of Christ. Now, he broke himself free from that, became Jesus of Nazareth, the man. He made himself poor. And in making himself poor, he made himself vulnerable. Vulnerable to sin. This is hard for us to imagine, but Jesus made himself vulnerable to sin. He really was tempted by the devil. That story. He was he felt, here's another way to say it, when you feel that gravitational pull of sin in your life, whether it's greed or lust or whatever it might be, Jesus knows what that pull feels like, and yet he doesn't give in to it. That's what it means to live the pure life. He doesn't give in to it. Not only did he make himself vulnerable to sin, he makes himself killable to the human race. From perfect, <laughs> the perfection of heaven into this world, becomes a man, makes himself vulnerable to sin and killable to us. He gave himself. Now, why would he do that? This is the risk-reward thing. That's a big risk he took. And you could say, you know, just doing the normal math, the way we normally do it, that that risk wasn't worth it. You got killed. But why do we call it Good Friday? We call it Good Friday because the reward was worth it. And who is the reward? The reward is you, folks. It's you and me. And when you get that, you become generous. That's the generosity factor. That's what the Macedonians got. It's what the Corinthians were struggling with. Much grace was received. Therefore, much grace is given. That's the formula that the New Testament has for us. And God is the first and the ultimate giver. Now let's take all of that and just close your eyes and we're going to pray. Allow the Holy Spirit to come and move in our hearts.
Lord, here's our prayer. You became poor. From the riches of heaven, you became poor. Of your own free will, you gave yourself away. You risked everything for us. Your generosity is beyond measure. And we, as your creatures, as those that you love, who are created in your image, could we just grow? I pray, Lord, this is our best prayer. Could we just grow to be more like you? Would your Holy Spirit work in us to to do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.